see everybody this morning. If you have a Bible, um, you can open it up to the book of Revelation. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, continuing a series um, that we're doing called In Our Midst. We're looking at Jesus and His presence with His church and His presence among His church. Uh, we have seen um, in Revelation that John has a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His glory and all of His authority. And it's a very authoritative, glorified picture of Jesus. And what we then immediately learn is that Jesus wants John to understand and wants seven particular churches in the Roman province of Asia that we're looking at over the next several weeks to understand that Jesus is with them, uh, that He is among them, that He is not forsaking them, and that He is observing um, what is going on in their, in their church. And so Jesus begins to critique um, if you would, uh, seven different churches in Revelation. And some churches he has nothing but good things to say to. Some churches need to be rebuked. Um, because as we know in church, there are good things and sometimes there are bad things and things that need to be corrected and things we can do better. And so what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus' interaction uh, over these weeks uh, with these churches to learn how we can as a church and as believers um, look at our lives and look at our lives corporately and individually and say, what would Jesus say, right? What does he speak to us about these things? Because the things they struggled with we struggle with, the adversity they faced, we face, because not a lot has changed in the last 2,000 years um, from when this was written. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 is where we're at this morning, and we're looking at a church in a city called Pergamum. And this is a church that they're going to have a major issue, and it's the issue of compromising the truth of God's Word in the life of their church among some of the people in their church. And so if you're here this morning, even if you're not a Christian, you have a worldview. You have a way in which you, which you view and interpret the things around you. Um, so that's shaped by a lot of things. Sometimes things in your childhood, your experience, the place you come from, all that sort of stuff. And it's also, obviously, if you're a believer, you're supposed to have a worldview shaped through the lens of the Bible. Um, and you're supposed to view things through that lens. And that's supposed to trump everything else, including tr- personal experience, personal truth, or whatever else, is the absolute truth of God's Word. Now, but everybody has values. And everybody has things that we look at and build our life upon, our own value systems. And it if it's not shaped by God's word, it'll be shaped by something else. I heard somebody say, if, if this is not your Bible, something or someone else will be, right? There's, we're, we're going to be shaped. We're going to be molded. We're going to base our life on something. Everybody does. We all have a worldview. And here, obviously, we believe and teach the Bible is what we're to, to build our life with, right? We build our life on Jesus. He's the foundation that's been laid in our lives through faith in Him. And we come through and we build on that foundation through the Word of God and with the Word of God by the power of the Spirit to become more like Jesus. That's what church is all about. Uh, if you're curious about that, you know, what, what's church all about? What's North Park all about? It's all about learning how to better build our lives on Jesus and His foundation to become more like Him and to serve His purposes um, for us corporately and individually. And so here, we, a value of ours is obviously being a Christ-centered church that builds our church by the Word of God. Who, who The Word of God should permeate the life of our church. And that's our small groups. That's our worship service. That's our individual lives. That's committees and councils and whatever else. Events, whatever, everything we do should be poured through that filter of the Word of God. And it should, it's the lifeblood, in a way, of our church. and should be. But what happens sometimes is because of personal desires or cultural demands, we begin to warp and we begin to twist God's word to make it fit, to make, you know, round peg, square hole and all that sort of stuff. We begin to try to make those things shift and and fit and make it work where maybe it doesn't work. And 
And so because of our own personal desires and conflict or adversity there, we begin to look at God's word and we begin to adapt it. Because of cultural demands and things going on around us and the uncomfort level and, and things of that late nature and not wanting to offend people, we begin to try to almost get embarrassed by stuff God's Word says, some people. And we begin to try to shift it to maybe make it more palatable. We look for new ways and new interpretations. And, and sometimes people strive to make the truth more profitable or they try to make the truth more palatable. And that's when you end up with false teaching. All right? Is when we try to make God's Word more profitable. Or we try to make God's word more palatable. Or very other things we might do it with. But those are two big ones that you see in the Bible. And that you see in culture today. And when we do that, we end up with all kinds of teaching that takes us away from God's word. So we have to constantly be deciding every day. What am I going to build my life on? What am I going to build my life with? Uh, what's the lens through which I'm going to be shaped by? And at the same time, corporately, we have to constantly be coming back to God's word. And realizing this is truth. This is what we build on. This is what we seek to obey. Everything we do, while we do it, and what we do should be guided by the truth of God's Word. And so here in this church in Pergamum, we're going to see this morning, there was some perverted living that had been brought about by some perverted teaching. Because that's what usually ends up happening, okay? Perverse teaching leads to perverse living. And that is what's happening in Pergamum as there's a group of people who are straying from God's truth, twisting God's truth, and leading to people living twisted lives. Look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the word sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, your word, to Pergamum and to us today. And we pray that today we would filter our life individually and corporately through your word and not filter your word through our life. And we pray that you'd help us to hear. Give us ears to hear. Eyes to see. Guide us in your truth by the power of your spirit. Help us to respond in obedience to your truth. And we ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So he's writing this to the church in Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And had been for over 200 years. This was a place that was fiercely loyal to Rome. Of all the seven churches, I mean, this is the place that, I mean, they've got the Roman banner. You go into, you go into their pubs and they've got the Roman flag up, you know, and they're all cheering on the Roman gladiators and they've got every Roman, you know, you name it, everybody's got their Go Rome t-shirt. Um, and I mean, you know, it was, if that, if Rome was a college football, <laughs> school, uh, they would be like the fiercest fans. Uh, this was a place that was locked in to loyalty to Rome. And it was considered the seat of Caesar worship in that area. See, that's something we have to constantly come back to is that at this particular time in history, 
Rome was wanting you and forcing you to worship and adhere to Caesar as Lord. Now, there were certain religions that are protected and you are able to practice those religions like Judaism. Christianity was not protected, okay? And so and in this particular city, if you're a Christian, you're being asked to bow your knee to Caesar and not to Jesus. It was also a very pluralistic religious city. They had temples to Zeus and Dionysus and Athene and Asclepius. Lots of fun Greek god names to say, right? But they had temples to all these idols. Asclepius' temple is where people would come from all over seeking healing. This idol was considered the god of healing, and the symbol was serpents intertwined on a staff. Sound familiar? The medical field today, right? Still, we still see this um, 2,000 years later, see this um, symbolism. And the temple had a hospital in it of sorts. It was very medically advanced for its day, and it had baths for people to come sit in, and the waters would rise, and they would do all these things. And they apparently practiced... Um, some sort of combination between medicine and psychology is what uh, one commentator said. And one portion of the temple was actually filled with non-poisonous serpents because that was the symbol, right, of this, of this false god. And people would come and, and lie down in this room in hopes that a serpent would touch them while they were kind of in this trance state so that it would heal them. So kind of weird stuff, right? Yeah, uh, this was a weird place. Weird stuff's going on. The other major temple which was the most visually dominating when you came into the city, was the altar of Zeus. Lots of archaeological history around that we won't get into. Some greatly debated, but it was huge and has been said to look something like a throne. The altar's podium was about 18 feet high. It's a big throne. It had a court in the form of a horseshoe that has been said to be between 100, about 125 feet by 112 feet, this horseshoe. And so we have this idle field pagan-filled, Caesar-worshipping city called Pergamum. And in this city is a church who is believing Jesus is Lord and that He is the only one that you should be worshipping. And so tension is about to happen. And so when Jesus addresses this church in this context, the first thing He tells them is He introduces Himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, which is interesting. A lot of times in these letters, these, addressing these seven churches, Jesus goes back to the vision that we looked at a few weeks ago about different things that John saw in his vision of Jesus. Here he goes back to the sharp two-edged sword that the Bible says is proceeding from his mouth. And we see um, th- the symbolism is very obvious that this is God's word. It's, it's the word of Christ. And it's a picture here of judgment. This is a negative introduction. This is really some how do you do. I mean, hi everybody, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. I mean, this is, this is a convicting word to them. He's letting them know, I have the authoritative word that's going to judge you. And you need to listen up to what I have to say. Hebrews 4, 12-13 says about the word of God, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's that symbolism again in Hebrews. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creatures hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, sometimes we forget, sometimes we quote Hebrews 4, right? God's word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But remember, that's in the context of judgment. Of it piercing your life and searching and judging your life and exposing you before God. That's what God's word can do. It's powerful. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. Is the, the judgment nature of his word. And so we need to understand this morning that Jesus' word, the Bible, 
is what we're meant to live by. And His Word is powerful and it's good. And if we fail to build our lives on the Word of Christ, in the end, we know we need to know we're going to be judged by Christ and His Word in accordance with it. And what is going on here in Pergamum is we're going to have, they're going to have to decide and we're going to have to decide also what's going to have the weight of authority in our life. They're going to have to decide what's going to have the weight of authority in their life. The sword of Christ or a weaker sword. The, the authoritative sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus or the sword of Rome. Or the sword of the culture. Or the sword of whoever. What's going to carry the weight in their life and in their decision making. Because see, here's the thing. Words have power. Everybody's word has some power. Your words have power. Words just have power. This past week, I didn't watch it, but I've seen clips and stuff. Apparently, the most watched like cable news thing in history happened uh, when, the, when the, one of the, fir- the first presidential debate of this coming election season was held, right? And so millions of people are turning to, to watch all these people on stage talk. Just talk about what they think and what they believe, make promises about stuff they're going to do and and do their sales pitch and all that kind of stuff, right? And in hopes of casting a vision and and speaking to you and so that you'll listen to it and you'll go, I'm going to vote for that guy, right? And that's kind of the whole purpose of it is to use their words to persuade you because words are powerful. Words have a way of impacting people and leaving a mark on people. What Jesus wants us to see here is that While all words have power, no word has more power than His word. Because He has all authority, therefore His word is all authoritative. Because He is exalted, His word is exalted. Because He matters more than anybody else's word matters more than anybody else's. And so He opens up with that. And then He begins to encourage them. Look at Jesus' encouragement to them in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So Jesus tells them, I know your context. I know your situation. There's nothing that's escaped my notice. Jesus knows both their struggles and their opportunities. He knows our struggles. He knows our opportunities. Jesus knows the context of where you live, move, and have, and do ministry. He understands everything about it. And he wants them to understand. I know where you're at. And I get that this is a place where Satan dwells, he calls it. Where Satan's throne is. And then he goes on to say where Satan dwells. That's a rough town. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, could you think of a, a, a more harsh way to describe a city? I mean, right? I mean... Can, can, can you think of a, 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 just a darker picture of a city than to say, this is where Satan's throne is. This is where uh, Satan's wells. He, 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 in fact, he, he majors on this twice. He brings it up. He's emphasizing this, right? Florida's the sunshine state. Orlando's city beautiful. Alabama's the, the home of the beautiful, where I'm from, right? Alabama the beautiful, or something like home of the beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Alabama the beautiful. But it's not really necessarily always the home of the beautiful, but... Um, <laughs> But here's the thing. That's not something you put on the city website. Right? Chamber of Commerce is not hanging that up anywhere. Um, you know, Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. You know, it's just not, you know, not that's not a marketable strategy to most people. This is a dark situation, and Jesus wants them to understand. I know how difficult your circumstances are. I know you're in a tough place to do ministry. Way tougher than anything we could imagine where we're at. Now, why did he call it that? Well, commentators differ. They give there's about four basic reasons that he could have called it that. One is because of Zeus's altar. It looked like a throne. And some people think Jesus is pointing to that um, as, uh, and, and, and is insinuating that. Um, some say it's Asclepius' temple because of all the snakes and obviously the ties to the, the serpent in Genesis and, and Satan. Some say it's just the rampant idol worship in general. 
Because we know that, that false doctrines are the doctrines in, in idols and all this. Sort of, it's the doctrines of demons, the Bible tells us. And so some say it's because of that. And some say it's just had to do with, with the worship of Caesar in the area. And, and, my, and that might be the most likely, by the way. Uh, because it was so um, pushed there. And it was the seat of where this kind of... It was just so rabid in the region, the Caesar worship. That some say that that's what he's referred to. And it's also very possible that it's just a combination of all these things. And that's really the big idea. The big idea is that this is a rough place. It's a rough place to be a Christian. It's a rough place to do ministry. It's a rough place to try to win people to Jesus and live for Jesus. It's, it's, like, it's like Satan's like his, set up his throne right there. He's, it's a bad place. It's a place of darkness. And Jesus wants them to understand. I understand that Satan is at work in your city. He's at work there. Pergamum was not the Bible Belt. And by the way, Satan's at work in the Bible Belt. Instead of most people going to church, most people worship Caesar and Zeus. and This is a spiritually dark place, hostile to the gospel. One person, as we've seen, has already been murdered. And we're not in the Bible Belt either, and this is not the easiest place. I mean, we've got Satan at work in our city. We've got sex trafficking going on and all kinds of things. that, that you know, It ain't Disney World everywhere, okay? Now, this, is, it's, it's, this, is, this is not Mayberry. And by the way, if someone said Mayberry without Jesus and the gospel goes to hell, right? And so this is not the new heaven and the new earth. This is a great place. It's a beautiful place. This is, we've got a dark side to our city and to our culture. Satan is at work in our culture and in our city. And it's like he was at work in Pergamum. And he's, some of us might need to wake up to that fact that evil's happening here and that there's, there's a real enemy that wants to destroy churches and wants to destroy Christians. He wants to, the Bible says, the thief has come to kill and to steal and to destroy. He didn't come to negotiate. He didn't come to, to give you a better life. He didn't come to help you, you know, to compromise a deal with you. So that he came to kill you and to destroy you and to make it as if you never existed. And that's what Satan wants to do. And we need to be aware of that. And this church, Jesus says, I'm aware of it. It's going on in your city. You're seeing the evidences of it all around you. And I want you to know that I'm not distracted from this. I'm not absent from this. And in the midst of this context, this church held to Jesus. They stayed true to the gospel. They held fast his name and they didn't deny the, his faith, he says. They continued to hold that Jesus is Lord. They didn't deny Jesus and go worship Caesar, in other words. A great number in the church is, is still being faithful to the gospel call. One of their members, by the name of Anibus, has suffered martyrdom. He was killed because he wouldn't deny the faith. We don't know, really, there's, there's legend around it and stuff. We don't know anything real factual about what happened there. Um, but he, he was murdered for his faith. Legend says, by the way, that he was, he was burned alive inside of a brazen bull. If it's true or not, that's the legend in church history. It's a dark place. And at this point, though, everything's very encouraging because Jesus is letting them know, I get the circumstances and you've held fast. You've stayed true. You're still holding on to me. Your faith, I get it. You're, you're still staying true to the faith. And it all sounds very encouraging. And I mean, that's something that we can apply to a church in a difficult circumstance. But then Jesus has a rebuke for him, and it's a serious rebuke in verse 14. I have a few things against you. Not one thing, not a thing, but a few things, he says, against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice the idols, and to practice sexual immorality. So you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
That's harsh, right? That's a very direct talk. And so he has a few things he says against them. It's never good when the judge of the universe has anything against you, much less a few things. And the problem here is false teaching and the living by false teaching. And Jesus takes false teaching very seriously is what we learn here. And he takes it very seriously when we take false teaching and we appropriate it into our life. And it doesn't take a false prophet out there for you to live by false teaching. You can be your own false prophet. You can teach yourself things wrongly. Or we can go and we can believe things that we hear from wherever and be, and be led astray. And here, there was some sort of official teaching that had gotten into the church. And not everybody, but there were some, Jesus said. So it's probably a minority who are starting to believe this and practice this. And what Jesus is really irritated with here is that the church is putting up with it. And they're just acting like it's no big deal. Well, just don't visit that small group. Um, they're kind of weird. Uh, you know, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You need to get that small group off your campus. Like they're, they might be a part of your church. They're not a part of mine. Is basically what Jesus is trying to let them know here. He's taking this very, very seriously because false teaching is a serious thing. Now, what is this false teaching? The teaching of Balaam. That just sounds. Who, who's Balaam? Is he some? Well, Balaam is not some false prophet from the New Testament. He is a prophet from the Old Testament. Jesus is recalling something from Numbers 22 through 24. You may be familiar with the story of Balaam. Um, a king, the king of Moab, Balak, wants to basically take out Israel. And so he goes to this prophet named Balaam and he asks him to curse Israel. He says, I've heard that whoever Balaam curses gets cursed and whoever he blesses gets blessed. So he says, I want you to curse the people of God, people of Jehovah, so that I can go take them out. And so... Balaam finds himself um, in a meeting with God who, who, who intervenes in this situation and tells him, don't you curse my people. And so Balaam ends up going four different times and speaking four blessings over Israel. Because he says, I can only do what God tells me to do. And so he gets up there and he says, I can't curse them. But and he, he speaks blessing over them four different times. And it just ticks off Balak. I mean, he is irritated. And if you didn't know any better. You'd think, well, you know, Balaam was in a tough spot. He had a guy offering him money and all this kind of stuff. And, and he went and he spoke blessing. And, you know, and, you know, so he did okay as a prophet. But then when you start finding out more, you look at chapter 25, you find out that immediately after all this happens that the women of Moab, and then you've got the, the men of Israel, the men of Israel start going and start committing immorality with the women of Moab and then being led astray into their idol worship. This brings God's curse upon them, and 24,000 of them are struck dead. You say, well, how did that happen? It all happens very quickly in chapter 25. Well, when you move on in Numbers, you find out it happens because Balaam, because he wasn't able to speak a curse over Israel, but he was paid handsomely, he goes and he decides that he will tell Balak, well, here's what you can do. I can't speak a curse over them, but I, I, th I think basically what he says is, you can incite them to bring the curse on themselves. I mean, they've been, you know, just... Send your pretty women over there and let them seduce these men and let these men end up falling in love with these women and then let them kind of just lead them astray. Now, I don't worship and God really won't like that at all. And he'll, you know, he'll just, he'll take care of this for you. Thanks for, thanks for your offering today. Um, I've, you know, I've done my consulting work and I'm, I'm ready to move on, right? That, and that's what happens. That's why the Bible speaks of, um, Balaam in, uh, first, second Peter 2.15 is one loving gain from wrongdoing. So there was a financial thing involved here, we've learned in the New Testament. 
And the bottom line was that in Pergamum, you had people doing what Balaam did. Ultimately leading God's people into idolatry and immorality through their teaching. In the Old Testament, that brought the judgment of God. And Jesus is letting them know in the New Testament, it's going to bring the judgment of God. That it's not like oh, it's, it wasn't okay and now it's okay. No, Jesus says, I'm still going to judge this. He's reminding them of a scenario that was one of the most horrific memories in the history of Israel. It was right there with the calf. Remember when Moses comes down the mountain and they built this golden calf? And I mean, and Moses just throws the commandments down and all that scene. Well, that and the one with Balaam are the, are the two most just horrific pictures of idolatry in the history of Israel. And Jesus is using that picture to point to the fact that, hey, you better deal with this because I take this seriously. I've always taken this seriously. I mean, he's talking about swords and, I mean, this is a, a harsh rebuke. Now, the Nicolaitans, people differ. Is this a different group than those teaching the teaching or the same group? And we can't really say for sure. The way the language is written, it does seem like it's a different group. Probably had similar teachings. Um, some believe because in the Greek, um, the idea of the, the word there for Nicholas is, is people and overcome. And so that it was a group that was lording authority over the people and saying like they had a special knowledge and things of that nature. But were probably teaching very similar things that these other groups were. This license to sin. What is happening here, the big picture, is that there were people in the church teaching people that they could continue to love and worship Jesus, but could also live in sexual sin and mix in some idol worship and other things from the culture. And what's happening is a disconnection between what you believe and how you behave. That's ultimately what's going on here. And we need to understand this morning that our beliefs drive our behavior. The idea that you can believe something but compartmentalize your life to not apply it to certain areas like sexuality is false. It's destructive. It's not helpful, it's harmful, and it's not the way of Christ. I quoted Paige Patterson from the New American Commentary earlier. He has a great commentary on this. He says, what is really at work here is what we would today call uh, antinomianism. It's a big fancy word. It's the idea of lawlessness. And the idea is this. Because you're saved by grace... Because you're saved by grace. Therefore, how you live after you profess faith in Christ doesn't really matter. You're forgiven. You're not perfect. And so because, you know, you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can just live in rampant wickedness and immorality. And, you know, it's okay. Because you're saved by grace, not by works. You're saved by grace, not by morals. And it's this lawlessness that you see happening. And what may have been happening, what some commentators believe, is what may have been happening is that they were take, taking some things that they had heard Paul had said when he's having to fight um, other types of heresies. And they're taking the things that Paul had said about being saved by grace and they're twisting it and making it sound like, well, what that means is your behavior and your lifestyle doesn't really matter. So sleep with who you want to sleep with. Do what you want to do. Hey, if it's your job to keep your job, you've got to mix in a little idol worship. Mix in a little idol worship because at the end of the day, you're saved by grace, brother. And Jesus is saying, I've got a real problem with this teaching. A, a big time problem to the point that I'm about to come and make war against these people if they don't deal with this and repent of this. The scripture teaches that we're not saved by our works or by our morals. However, our works and our morals can reflect the genuineness of or lack thereof our faith. Our faith drives our morals. Our faith drives our works and our behavior and it drives them toward Christ. A faith that doesn't drive your moral compass and doesn't drive your behavior towards Christ's likeness is not a biblical saving faith. It's absent from Scripture. 
The whole, I ask Jesus into my heart and I live life however I wanted to is completely void. It's heresy. It's nowhere and found in the Word of God. And so the Bible teaches that when we surrender to Christ and we truly trust Him and invite Him into our life and place our faith in Him, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and begins to change us. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be perfect. That doesn't mean we're not going to have seasons of struggle and failure and all those sorts of things. But I'm talking about the person that just goes in the other direction, casts off the Word of God, what the Word of God teaches, and lives like they've got a get-out-of-hell-free card. And, and, and that, that's basically their worldview. I'm saved, therefore I can do whatever. And the Bible calls that a license to sin. It's antinomianism. It's lawlessness. It's not gospel. gospel the gospel is transformative. And it transforms the way we view all these things. And it, and it makes us see things. We understand, hey, I don't do what I do so that I can be right with God. I'm right with God, therefore I do what I do. And it, 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 if we get that backwards, on one end you get legalism. And you become someone who's trying to earn your way to God, right? And make yourself right with God, thinking your works and your morality will save you. And that's just as damning, by the way. And then on the other end, you cast off the other side and you get this liberal view of, well, because I've done some decision in the past, I can live however I want to. Well, you can live however you want to. Live however you want to. The problem is the fact that you want to live a certain way that's completely devoid of the way Jesus says live. That brings into question the heart. And whether it's been transformed. Now, I'm not the one to judge hearts this morning. I can't do that. Jesus will do that. Jesus will sort through all that, not me. But it's our job to constantly point us back and say, what saith the Scriptures, see? And the Scriptures say that our faith should drive everything else and should shape our morals and our works and all those sort of things are shaped by what we believe. And it's not that all of a sudden we're some perfect person. It just means there's a new trajectory in our life. And as you look back 10, 20 30 years, you can see your life is going in a different direction than it would be if you didn't have faith in Christ. But wrong living many times is preceded by wrong teaching. Perverted teaching leads to perverted living. And that's what we have to understand this morning. The reason we behave the way we do sometimes is because we believe the lie. Sometimes it's as simple as the lie in the garden. God didn't really say. Did God really say? Or the little lie that says, God's not really good. He doesn't really have your best intentions at heart. I mean, that little lie will wreak havoc in your life. Even in the life of a believer, if you start believing that. It'll wreak havoc in your life. All sorts of things. False teaching will always lead you away from Jesus. Either in who he says he is or how he says you should live. We'll always do that. And there may be some here today that hold to a damaging false teaching. Maybe you think because you're saved by grace, therefore your sin is not a big deal. And you don't see your immorality or your adultery or whatever the practice may be as a big deal because you say, I'm forgiven and I'm not perfect. And, and forgiveness is not an excuse for sinfulness. And while forgiven people do still sin, a weak attitude towards sin can reflect a lack of forgiveness in your life. It's just a warning that we need to have there, need to understand and constantly be bringing before us. See, we need to realize that all false teaching, though, will in fact ultimately be hurtful in our lives. It will lead us at some point into error. Your spiritual growth is not helped, but only hindered by spiritual poison. You think for, about somebody that, imagine the healthiest person you know. They exercise regularly, they, they eat great, like your pastor. I'm um, just kidding, that's not me at all. Um, but some, somebody who just, I mean, they are guru health person, right? And they're the person you call, you know, should I eat this or whatever. And they're just, you know, they, they live by the book. Live, 
It's, they really take care of their body. And then take, think somebody that you know that doesn't take care of themselves, all right? And go, okay, how much poison would it take to kill each person? Now, I don't want you to plot their death here. But think about that for a second. Poison's going to kill either one of them. It doesn't matter how healthy one is and how unhealthy one is. And what we need to understand is that's the danger of heresy and that's the danger of false teaching. It's harmful to anybody. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in church or how much Bible you know. At the end of the day, when you start believing things that are false and filling your mind with things that are false, that are not in line with God's word, that is damaging, it's unhelpful, it's, it's unhurtful. But you do need to know this. The person who takes good care of themselves physically is much less likely to put something into their body that's going to do a lot of damage to it. And the person that takes care of themselves spiritually is going to be much more aware to when they hear false teaching and be able to spot it. And that's why it's important that you feed yourself. That's why it's important that you don't take my word for everything up here. Read your Bible. Fact check me. I'm fallible. I am very capable of standing in here and telling you things that are wrong, right? We don't believe in my perfection or anything like that. There's, there's nothing like that here, okay? So at the end of the day, we're doing the best we can by the power of the Spirit to present to you the truth, and you've got to do the best you can by the power of the Spirit and realize that if you're a believer, God's given you the Holy Spirit too, and I don't have some special anointing that can interpret the Bible in a way that you can't, and you can read it for yourself, and you can apply it for yourself, and you might find out sometimes I'm wrong. It won't happen often. I'm just kidding. But, but it happens. But the point is, don't assume because someone stands in front of a crowd with a Bible in their hand that they're saying things that are true. Sometimes they're wrong in ignorance and sometimes they're wrong maliciously. And we have to always be checking. When God's word and your life collide, what are you more likely to change? That'll tell you a lot about where you stand in terms of false teaching and believing in your own life. When your life and God's word intersect and something's got to give, what gives? Do you begin to say, well, maybe that don't mean what I thought it meant. Maybe I can go, maybe I can find something somewhere that, believe, that teaches that differently. Maybe there's, you know, we begin to shift and to, and to shape what's going on. See, here are some reasons that I jotted down this week that people may gravitate towards false teaching. One is lostness. If you don't know Christ, you just need to understand you are, you are left wide open. I don't mean this offensively. I just mean you are just much more, we are much more capable without Jesus and faith in Him to being susceptible to people telling us things that are wrong and us believing them because we don't have the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes lostness. Another one is, for the believer, just ignorance. You're, we're not educating ourselves with the, God's Word, and that's dangerous. So ignorance... I don't mean that tacky. I just mean, you know, you don't know what the Bible teaches about that. And so somebody tells you, well, it means this, and you just believe it. Um, deception. False teaching can be alluring and very deceptive. Some people just make it sound right, right? Just like a good car salesman. Selfishness. Power and greed dominate the selfish lifestyle and lead some people to twist the Scriptures to say certain things that it doesn't say. Justification. This is a big one. People look for ways to justify their sin and their choices and their lifestyle because justifying it's a lot easier than admitting you're wrong. And so we begin to twist the Scriptures. See, we live in a day, unfortunately, where we're seeing churches stray and begin to teach and believe things that are completely contrary to God's Word and not just on minor things, major things. And it's only going to get worse. I hate to tell you that. I don't see it getting any better anytime soon. 
Because the more our culture drifts on certain moral issues, some, some churches are going to feel a need to try and keep a people. And in order to reach a people, they will change and morph, and the new word is evolve on issues that the Bible has not evolved on in some 2,000 years. But they're going to see a need to begin to evolve on these issues. And that's how you end up with false teaching. Just like Balaam, some may do it for the money. They don't want to lose attendance. So they evolve. Seen it in the news already this weekend. Major churches. Former Southern Baptist Church. Elected the first Southern Baptist Convention president. No longer Southern Baptist Church, but still a Baptist church. Completely changed their views on sexuality and ordaining homosexuals, transgender, um, accepting them in the membership. You know, and just completely morphing their view on the marriage, doing those weddings and all that sort of stuff. Evolved. Another major um, person I read this week is that. I mean, it's, 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 it's like every week, every month you're hearing something like this. And we need to beware of... And those are major issues. But you know what, what gets you there on the major issues? When on the issues that you don't think is major... You begin to bend God's word around your life instead of bend your life around God's word. Because I can tell you, long before somebody says, I'm going to redefine what I think about something as big as marriage, they've redefined what God says about something else personally in their life. That's where it starts. And so we need to understand, we, we open ourselves up to this. See, disobedience to known truth is like the gateway drug to false teaching and heresy. And here's why. Once you begin to know something is true and to disobey what is true, at some point you've got to do something to soothe your conscience. Make yourself feel better. Because even if, even if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you've got a conscience. And you've got to do something to justify it, especially if you've been around Bible teaching and you know something else is true. And so you'll begin to morph things and change things. And you'll walk into false teaching and heresy to justify yourself. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-4. through 4. Paul's writing to his protege, young preacher, and he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready to preach the Bible and teach the Bible, he says. He says, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, Paul said, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's what Paul said a long time ago. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to train us to love sound Bible teaching and interpretation. Beware of being attracted to the church that only makes you feel good when you go there. And that gives great pep talks. Everybody needs a great pep talk every now and then, okay? All of us need that from time to time. But you need to understand something. If there's no reproving... If there's never any rebuking, if there's never any exhortation, then it's not Bible preaching. It's just not. And that's what Paul warns Timothy about. Faithful Bible teaching and Bible interpretation in your daily reading to guard yourselves against myths. Man-made tales. They're a horrible substitute for God-breathed truth. But churches are full of them. And the truth of God's word many times will, will hurt to hear and to apply. But it's always healing in the end.
See, Jesus will not stand for unrepentant false teaching, unrepentant immorality, unrepentant idolatry, and neither should believers in your life. You shouldn't stand for that. Jesus is not going to stand for it in your life. So you, you and I shouldn't stand for it. And you shouldn't stand for it in the local church, among the faith community, among those who believe. Jesus doesn't stand for it. You say, well, what if I've started believing something false and it's got me down a path? What if I've started justifying? What if I've started justifying sexual immorality or idolatry or other forms of compromise or something with the culture or whatever else in my life? What do I need to do? Well, here's what Jesus says. Repent. <laughs> I mean, just, and the Bible's always coming back to that. Just re- repent. Wherever you're at, whatever you've done, whatever you're thinking, whatever you believe, whatever track you've went down, just stop and repent. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, if they don't repent, I'm showing up to war against them. I don't think he's talking about the second coming. I think he's speaking providentially that he's going to move and work in their midst in such a way that he's, they're going to see and they're going to understand that he means business. He's warning them of his discipline. So he says, repent. Biblical repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction and ultimately a change of life. It's more than acknowledging that you're wrong. That's just not being arrogant, right? I'm wrong, okay. I mean, we're, we're all wrong sometimes. It's dealing with the sin. It's turning it, turning from it and turning to Jesus. Any repentance that doesn't lead you into the arms of Jesus is not repentance. You might be sorry or whatever, but if it doesn't lead you into the arms of Jesus, resting in the cross and resting in His resurrection and following His truth, then it's not real repentance. Repentance, always true biblical repentance, always leads you to Jesus. Individual repentance is meant for... Turning for, for turning from false teaching, false believing, false behaving, and turning from that to Jesus' truth. And corporate repentance is meant to help you remove the unrepentant from the membership of the church. You didn't think you were going to hear that this morning when you came, did you? <laughs> that's hard. That's, we're like, that's difficult. It's throughout the New Testament. Now, I'm not talking about witch hunts and goofy stuff like that. I, I'm just saying, at the end of the day, that's what Jesus is addressing here. He's saying, listen, the purity of the church is important. And the church is to be a place that anybody can come and anybody is welcome. But membership is, is a covenant amongst God's people, with God's people, and God himself through Jesus Christ to say, we believe these truths, we believe this, and we're going to hold to it, and I expect you to hold me accountable in it. And that's why when a leader messes up, majorly, doesn't deal with that, church has to deal with that. You can't sweep that under the rug and act like nothing happened. It's a big deal. Because the purity of the church is a big deal because it's Jesus' bride. And that's what we have to do in the lives of, our, uh, lives of our church as well. Some of you know things that I don't know. Some of you know believers. You know members of our, probably even of our own body that have maybe have sin in their life that's just rampant. And you know what they need? They need you to go to them and lovingly, lovingly help them deal with their sin. To confront them in a loving, not condemning, in a loving way. It's not loving to let somebody stew in wickedness. It's not loving to let somebody walk in a path of destruction. It's not loving to hold somebody's hand away from Jesus. That's not loving. It's not loving. And we're going to see that. We're going to deal with that even more in depth next week. Because what we're going to see next week is Jesus is going to deal with the church and he's going to say, what I've really got against you is that you tolerate this sin in your midst. It's a harsh thing. Now, the consequences for this church was going to be dire. Jesus was going to discipline them. But he also gives them a promise. Look at what he says in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
says, hear what the Spirit says. This is Jesus once again saying, listen, listen up. If you have ears to hear and you can understand what I'm saying, listen to this and apply it. He's wanting us to apply his word. And he gives three promises to the conqueror or to the believer. We've said over the last few weeks that the, the, the believer is the conqueror. And this is what he says. Promise one is he says, I promise you hidden manna. What in the world does that mean? That sounds like as I ask, hidden manna. You know? And there's a couple of different views of that. And one of which gets back into some non-canon kind of writing. So we won't, we won't really get into that one. But here's the big one, the obvious one, is this is a reference to the Old Testament when Jesus sustained Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven. Then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and says, that's all about me, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that sustains my people. And I think what Jesus is saying here is in the midst of your persecution, I mean, one of you is already dead. I'll be the one that sustains you. Jesus is promising sustenance to his people now and forever. He is the bread of life. That's the first promise he gives. The second promise he gives is a white stone. The white stone had three primary purposes in their day, the people point out. The first one is really two, because two of them go together. It was given to jurors in trials um, for their way of voting for acquittal. Okay? And so the jury comes out, and the white stone was their way of saying acquit. All right? And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a white stone. Right? And we know that Jesus... Uh, obvious allusions there. The next one was given to victors at the end of athletic contests to get them into the big banquet. It was like serves as their invitation, their way in to the big banquet, the big party um, after the big athletic contest and the games and all that sort of thing. And the bottom line is that no matter which one Jesus is pointing to, he does all these things for us. He's the one that makes it, we, we're set free because of Jesus. We're acquitted because of Jesus. God looks at us and says, not guilty because of Jesus, because on the cross, Jesus took on our guilt, He took on our shame, and He took on the punishment we deserve for our sin, so that God could give you a white stone that says you're acquitted, and you can go free. And at the same time, Jesus is the victor that's won the victory for us over sin, death, and hell, and we share in that victory, and we're invited into His banquet hall. And we'll one day participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we'll spend all of eternity with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. Awesome promises. And the third one is He promised them a new name would be written on that white stone. So I'm not just going to give you a white stone. I'm going to write you a new name on that white stone. Now what does that mean? What does He mean? I'm going to give you a new name that nobody knows except the, the one I give it to. Commentators point to three different things. Okay, This is when you get into Revelation and it gets a little more difficult to understand exactly... 100% what he's saying, but three basic possibilities. Character, in the the Bible times, um, a name meant a lot more than, you know, my name is Josh. You know, my name is my reputation. It's my character, what you think of when you think of me. That's why the Bible says a good name is to be chosen rather than riches. doesn't mean have a cool, trendy name. It means have a great reputation. That's better than being rich. What people think about you matters. If it, if it reflects well in the Lord or not. And here it could be that Jesus point to the new character we have in Christ as He transforms us and we become like Christ, the Bible says ultimately. When we're transformed and given glorified bodies and we're made completely new and all that happens at the, at the consummation, at the end of the age, and maybe that's what He's pointing to here. Another thing it points to is authority. To name someone is to show authority over them. And Jesus is pointing to the fact, I believe, that He has authority over us and He can give us a new name, but it also points to intimacy. To name someone is is an intimacy. Jesus loves us. He has a unique name just for us that only we will know. He says, he said, I have authority over you. And yes, I'm making you into a people that that are going to be like Christ. And I love you. And I know your name. And I'm going to give you a name just for you. 
This is an encouragement to us of the intimate way Jesus knows us and how he loves us and cares for us. John MacArthur writes, it will uniquely reflect God's special love for and adoption of every true child of his, this name. You know, we agonize when we named our children, Cannon, the oldest, our son, and Eden, our daughter. We, uh, we agonized over names, man. I mean, it, this is a big demo. They're going to have that name forever. We wanted unique names, but we wanted some significance there. And I wanted a masculine name for him. I wanted a feminine name for her. All those sort of things. Strong name for him. All this sort of stuff. And so we, and we wanted something biblical in there. So Canon Joshua, and we had all this unique to us, what, what that symbolized for us and all that sort of stuff. And then with, with Eden, you know, we analyzed and analyzed. And, and literally, um, not long before she was born, we came up with her middle name, Day. And uh, just this picture of, of beauty and all this sort of stuff. And so... And then there's nicknames. And you don't analyze as much about them usually, right? And I remember the first time we took Cannon to the pediatrician, the nurse said, hey, Mr. Cannon. And we've called him Mr. Cannon for two years now, almost three years. It just stuck because his name kind of sounds like a last name anyway. And, um, and Christy calls him Cannon Bug. And you get these little nicknames, right? And a parent does that. They name the child and even nickname the child or whatever. For one thing, they have the authority to do so. But it's also, it's the care and the time you put into that, and the thoughts and the prayers and all that sort of, and, and the little jovial nicknames and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's also about intimacy and it's also about a love for that child. It's also about caring for that child. And, and that's the power behind what Jesus says when he says, I'm going to give you a name that nobody else is even going to know. That's the kind of authority I have. And that's the kind of intimate knowledge I have of you. And Jesus gives those three promises. He says, I'm going to sustain you. And he says, I'm the one who's acquitted you, who has set you free, who has provided your victory, and who invites you in to the kingdom, and, at the, and has, has reserved your spot, your reservation. And I'm the one who's gonna, who knows you intimately, who has authority over all these things. Because it's those three promises that we cling to in the midst of difficult circumstances and a strained culture as when holding the truth and towing the line on the Word of God becomes increasingly difficult and the culture continues to just kind of come apart at the seams, it's these promises that hold you together. And so he tells this church in Pergamum who's in the place where Satan's throne is, he says, you need these three promises. And I believe today the church needs those promises. Christ is our provision. Christ is our victor. Christ invites us into his banquet. And Christ knows and cares for us in a way that nobody else can. And we have to hold it. And it's when you understand that about Jesus, it makes it a lot easier when you come to hard things in the Word to not try to change the Word, but to try to change you with the Spirit's help. 